1: Facebook just announced recently it's taking down over 800 U S based accounts and pages in part for spreading false or misleading political information. This is happening just weeks before the midterm elections. Domestic trolls are a change from the 2016 elections when it was Russian operatives manipulating social media to influence American voters. The use of fake social media accounts to push political messages is something that's happening not only in this country but in other parts of the world as well and in some cases It's even leading to deadly consequences. A new book titled Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media, shows just how powerful sites like Facebook and Twitter have become globally. The authors of the book are Peter W. Singer, a strategist and senior fellow at New America, and Emerson Brooking, who is a former research fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and they join us now to discuss their work. Peter, Emerson, thank you for your time today. All the best. Great to be here. Thank you. I mean, Peter, it is amazing that that how social media has kind of developed from this from this entity, you know, uh, 20 years ago to where we are now, and the impact that it is having on a lot of these different events, uh, you know, political consequences, but but military consequences as well.
2: Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. One of the people we interviewed for the book was uh, the literal godfather of the internet itself, um, Vint Cerf, and you know he talked about how it was once this military uh, network for scientists, and then there was this moment when uh, the scientists begin to email back and forth about science fiction, and that's when he realized, hold it, it's become this social thing, and you move forward, and now uh, you know Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you name it they're not just the nervous system of the modern world. They're you know where we do business. They're where we uh, set up dates. Um, but they've also become this space of battle, and uh, battle over everything from uh, political campaigns uh, to use in military operations, um, marketing wars, you name it. And one of the things that the book is about is essentially how if cyber war was – the hacking of networks that, of course, both governments and businesses have had to deal with. We now have this phenomena of what we call like war, which is the hacking of the people on the networks by this mix of likes, but also lies.
1: Well, Emerson, I mean, when you think about the the military part to it for a second, uh, the stories you would hear about ISIS and some of the the things that they were trying to do uh, and and the recruitments that they were using through social media as a way, you know, to be able to reach so many different people.
0: That's right. Uh, This issue came on our radar and came on the radar of a lot of folks across the country back in the summer of 2014 when the Islamic State invaded northern Iraq. Uh, they only had about 1500 militants they had pickup trucks and secondhand weapons of a lot of militant groups past but they did something new and that was uh, instead of keep their invasion a secret they actually tweeted about it they actually had a hashtag campaign hashtag all eyes on isis uh, which they used to consolidate and broadcast their propaganda and they had a huge network of both passionate supporters but also twitter bots which they used to uh, basically, locked down the trending hashtags on Twitter uh, for the Arabic speaking uh, users. And as a result of that, even though they only had a small invading force, they were so effectively able to, um, uh, to spread fear that seemed to be much greater than they were to push these demoralized defenders of a city like Mosul with 1.5 million residents to nonetheless push these defenders to drop down their weapons and flee. And in the process, as ISIS started scoring these propaganda videos and like weaving them back into their online messaging, it became a source of great inspiration for people following along at home. It was a direct result of these online tactics that they were able to recruit some 30,000 fighters from the Middle East, but also the wider world, over 100 countries where people would leave their homes to journey to Syria and Iraq to join them. Or if that wasn't possible, they felt inspired to commit acts of violence at home.
1: And Peter, it's changing the way that, that some countries in their military perspectives are, are looking at how to defend uh, in their, their people and their countries.
2: It's become a new battle space. And to build on what Emerson was saying, it's a battle space where a wide variety of actors with very different uh, real-world goals are ending up using the very same tactics. So uh, you would see ISIS's top recruiter, uh, this um, failed rapper from Great Britain named Junaid Hussein, uh, he was using the very same tactics that Taylor Swift uses to sell her music albums. Uh, Or you would see in terms of um, organizational operations, uh, the approach that the Trump campaign, used to win its online fight is very similar to the model that BuzzFeed used to, uh, in effect, rewrite the story of um, media. Um, And so part of that aspect of it being a conflict is all the sides are watching, all the sides are learning, and they're learning not just from who they're directly facing off against, but also from people in other kind of conflicts. And so you see this proliferation of... um, military uh, campaigns to uh, recreate these lessons. You know, We visit a U.S. military training ground to the Israeli army has set these things up to, quite famously, the Russians have, et cetera. But then you also see, in turn, private corporations starting to do the same. For example, Facebook talked about recently how it's created a war room to deal with these kind of disinformation operations.
1: So take us into that for a second, because the role of executives and companies like Facebook and, and Twitter, obviously these are not things that, in the case of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg was thinking about when he developed Facebook in his, in his dorm room at Harvard a couple of decades ago. But it, it's something that, in terms of the real world, Peter, that he has had to add to his thinking as Facebook has become so popular.
2: That's one of the other... Just immense historic changes that we've seen is that uh, over a very short period of time, a handful of you know, in essence, tech geeks uh, have become among the most powerful figures in all of politics and war. Uh, you know, they don't set out with this this plan in mind, and it's a similar story. You know, not just at Facebook, it's at Twitter. You know, the very name Twitter is taken from a term for um, short bursts of inconsequential information, and yet, of course, you know, it's shaping the outcome of elections, wars, you name it, and so. The- this handful of people are now making decisions on, you know, everything from uh, what Russian disinformation campaigns are allowed to thrive or not, to uh, should Myanmar's generals be able to use their platform to call for genocide or not? Um, it's a first amendment questions uh, yeah. that have hit everything from, you know, Alex Jones to activist groups, and. In many ways, what's played out is, uh, I liken it to um, parents going through the stages of grief at what's happened to their babies. Um, you know, first there was denial, uh, for example. Zuckerberg famously says right after the election, it's a quote, pretty crazy idea that you know his platform could have been used in this way and it could have shaped the way people voted. And he's saying that though, at the very same moment that Facebook is marketing to political campaigns, this is the best space to influence people. Yeah. But do you move forward a couple years And now he's saying things like um, we are in a, quote, arms race. Uh, against these adversaries, but there's also a bit of bargaining going on where the tech companies have undertaken a series of activities that that are certainly good, but they've clearly not gone far enough yet, and there's a bit of bargaining going on, particularly in terms with government of, you know, well we'll do this, but please stay out of our space. And I think that bargaining back and forth is really going to shape not only politics moving forward, it's going to be a debate in upcoming elections, but also of course will shape the internet for the rest of us.
1: Well, uh, Emerson, how is it also going to impact just our culture in general uh, because you guys also talk about it in the book this this impact occurring really at the street level in many cases especially you mentioned uh, about what we've seen in Chicago at times with some of the violence there the gang related violence and how social media is linked into that
0: that's right If you uh, if you think that social media had a decisive impact in shaping the millennial generation you need to look further. You need to look to the Gen Z folks who are growing up now. And uh, uh, the way, uh, <clears throat> first off, just culturally, a, a platform like Instagram is now the center of social life in these schools. It's not a minor thing when you when you talk about something like bullying on Instagram, right. because it is the primary social gathering place after school. Um, but there are also more serious examples of how social media is affecting these folks coming up. In Chicago, some 80% of school fights now originate because of comments made online. Gangs recruit actively through these social media platforms. And in the book, uh, we tell the example of a very talented young rapper, Shekwan Thomas, who was also a proud member of a local gang, the Gangster Disciples. And he winds up being the target of three hits by a rival gang. The first two times he gets away, unfortunately, bystanders are killed in the process. Yeah. But he gets away typically when, you're in, when you've survived something like that. You might lay low a while, but he immediately starts rapping about it because he sees it as great content and a great way to build his brand. Well, they get him the third time. He immediately becomes an online martyr. And then uh, a week later, we see another shooting this shooting happens because someone was making fun of Thomas, and it originated because of a mean online comment. And in gang violence generally, in crime moving forward, we see situations where a local argument, which might start online, can nonetheless spread or be answered by violence miles away, or even in a gang franchise in another city.
1: So we're even seeing just the the, the overall level of, of anger and violence that we see in the country to begin with being, I, I don't want to see, well, the word aided may not be the right word, but being assisted by the fact that that social media and what people say on social media at many times without a filter uh, is definitely having a significant impact here, Emerson.
0: Absolutely. And when you think about it, something like, like a gang feud or, even a really angry political argument, so much of it is performative, and it's it's—it's not so much that people are acting in different ways, or have evolved naturally in different ways, it's that uh, this is the logical tool, if you're in one of these performative contests, it's a logical tool to uh, broadcast yourself to a wider audience. But the trouble is just the way this information flows, we're not yet really adapted to deal with it. And very quickly, Uh, emotions, and particularly anger, can make these feuds spiral out of control. we draw on a lot of studies in the book uh, regarding—it's called emotional contagion. It's basically the rate at which emotions spread over social media and how they influence people. And again and again, anger is shown to be—anger and outrage, the emotions that spread farthest and fastest and incite others to violence.
1: Peter, your thoughts?
2: Part of the research found that uh, whatever the group, whatever the goal, whether it was, uh, Private business, a political campaign, uh, a gang, a celebrity, you name it, there were a series of new rules on driving your message viral, on winning the war of attention online. And uh, these helped explain why certain brands, so to speak, were thriving and other ones were losing, whether it was the Trump brand or um, online. One of the best businesses at this is uh, Wendy's. Um, Another person that we interviewed for the book was. a producer who was behind the Kardashians, but we also interviewed uh, extremist group recruiters, and it kept coming back again and again to these rules. Uh, one of them you talked about was um, emotion, and uh, particularly the the most powerful emotion, at least online, is anger. Yeah. And it's not just the case in our own politics; it plays out even in, um, for example, studies of the closed Chinese system. Uh, there's other key rules. Um, you know, we could go through them, but you know, real rapidly, there are things like uh, narrative, there's building online community, there's uh, inundation crossed with experimentation. But what's just utterly fascinating is these rules of the game Are defining who is winning online but now in a world where so much depends on winning online it's having very real-world effects and I think it's important to understand whether you're uh, a business that's dealing with these phenomena but also all of us as individuals because we are the targets of these wars whether it's a marketing war or whether it's a, a real world war we're the ones whose clicks decide Whose side wins out? 844-942-7866
1: 844-942-7866 is the number. If you would like to join in with a comment or question, we are joined by the authors of the book, Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. Uh, P.W. Singer, Emerson Brooking, are our guests. 844- 942-7866 or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So, Peter, I mean, we obviously follow this more from a United States perspective, and obviously. And Obviously, the things that have we've seen going on here. How significant of an issue is it outside of our borders? Is it is it just as big a problem in in Europe or in Asia or Australia than it is here in the United States?
2: It is indeed. Uh, And it's one that helps drive why these tactics are spreading. Uh, So, you know, let's look at a micro example, the use of uh, bots, um, artificial voices online, to not just trick people as individuals, but also to drive overall Internet trends, to steer things into uh, your news feed and the like. In the Brexit campaign, one third of the online conversation was generated by these false voices. And of course, the online conversation is affecting not just the individual voter, but it also shapes uh, what journalists are covering. They decide what to cover based on what's trending. They test things out, et cetera. One third of that in that election, which was of course, especially close, uh, but we've not gotten much better at it. Uh, For example, um, the Mexican election was earlier this year one-third of the online conversation was generated by bots. We're seeing um, also this change, the nature of politicians, um, but also uh, CEOs that went out. Um, Just like uh, television created a demand to be telegenic and rewarded people who could do that, it's the same phenomena happening in social media. So uh, you're seeing the rise of uh, new types of politicians that are leveraging that, but also new types of CEOs. And we could go back and forth on whether it's for better or for worse. But, you know, just like TV, it's having that same kind of effect.
1: Well, you mentioned at the beginning of the book and, and you touched on it briefly, uh, the role that that social media has been playing in the in the in the uh, presidential campaign for for Donald Trump, but also in his private life as well as, you know, somebody that was a businessman and then uh, on reality TV as well.
2: Yeah, that was one of the uh more fun um but uh, exhausting parts of the research is we went back and read all of Donald Trump's old tweets so you didn't have to.
1: And uh the opening <laughs> wow. of the book is um So how little... so how was that reading, huh? <laughs> uh
2: great. Yes, okay. <laughs> but sometimes right. sad. Um, uh, So the opening of the book is uh, actually Donald Trump's very first tweet, Uh, you know, a little known uh, story uh, where he is turning to social media to announce an upcoming TV appearance to try and save the ratings for The Apprentice. He announces that he's going to be reading the top 10 list on Letterman, uh, and it's a way to market for the season finale of The Apprentice, which is sinking in the ratings. Um, And uh, it's just sort of this strange moment in time where you're using social media to promote TV. Um, And he, though, over time, like the rest of us, begins to get addicted. And you can see over the next years his style, his approach change. He also begins to hone some of the tactics that would take him into the presidency. Uh, For example, he begins um, online beefs. It's a little bit of a parallel to what Emerson was talking about of um, gangsters. It's this performative thing online, but it's also to draw what he wants most, which is attention. And then his eye begins to turn to politics. And one of the other fun stories in this period is – he uh, announces a uh, creation of a website as if it's by a fan. Um, It's shouldtrumprun.com. And he says, you know, hey, everybody, what do you think about it? What he does not reveal is that the website was created by Michael Cohen, his personal lawyer, who, yeah. you know, of course his life has changed since. But, you know, you move forward, and that very same account that was being used for business promotion, um, TV appearances, Trump mattresses, etc., it then announces I'm honored to be the 45, uh, 45th president of the United States. And we know it's Donald Trump who wrote it because honored is misspelled.
1: <laughs> okay. So yeah, so exactly. That, that's exactly right. But I mean, you use the word addiction. And Emerson, I have you comment on this is that there obviously is a recognition of the impact that social media in general is having by these bad actors and the fact that there is a level of addiction out there.
0: That's right. And for many years, the designers of these products, uh, the social media platforms, uh, designed them to be addictive. Think about something as simple as the notification button, which is often a a little red dot that you press on an icon to get rid of it and see who commented on you. Every part of that design is extremely deliberate. Red uh, is the color of a particular uh, physiological arousal. You want to touch things that are red. Uh, Notifications don't suggest until you click on them. Pardon me. Notifications don't suggest what the notification is about. On Facebook, it could be an acquaintance's birthday, but it could also be a long comment from a dear friend. And for over a decade, there was no consideration whatsoever whatsoever on the social impact of these platforms because it was thought that it was a universal good. The more people that were connected, the better. And as uh, Peter already talked about, now there's much more a reckoning regarding the social impact of these platforms, but there's still a long way to go.
1: What do you expect uh, that, that we're going to see happen, Peter? I mean, what has to occur to have a significant change so that we don't have the same type of, uh, of, of destruction via online that we've obviously been seeing over the last 20 years? Or is there an expectation that, at some point that this is part of our lives now?
2: There has been a pattern uh, that goes back to you know the early days of uh, MySpace and Six Degrees, uh, Friendster, uh, AOL, if you remember all of those. And the pattern has essentially been uh, that the platform companies have um, wanted to uh, stay out of uh, difficult political decisions of what's on their network, but that repeatedly they've been forced to intervene by a combination of their own customers getting angry and demanding it and the fear of political intervention. This goes back to, you know, the very first intervention in terms of policing Internet porn, which, uh, you know, appropriately enough, came out of a a fake news story. Uh, You'll remember there was this, you know, claim that one third of the Internet was porn and it was actually drawn from a false story, but it had real effect. So this pattern has um, continued all the way to today. And you see the same thing playing out with Facebook and Twitter. And that points to, you know, it's us as consumers, uh, users, citizens of these digital empires that are going to demand it be cleaned up, they're going to demand more. And again, there's a fear of government intervention, and that's going to shape it. There's a second pattern, though, uh, that concerns me, is that in trying to solve their problems, the technology companies always turn to new technology. Sure, yeah. And it then creates a whole new set of problems. And you can see that, for example, with the newsfeed algorithm. And what looms is
1: artificial intelligence. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Emerson.
2: For more insight from Knowledge
0: at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.